Welcome, everybody, to episode 36 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again this week by my longtime colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill, say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and this week we are going to talk about the pending U.S. withdrawal from Somalia. Um, During the final weeks of his administration, President Trump has ordered a complete or near-complete withdrawal of U.S. military personnel from the country in East Africa. Um, We're going to talk about what that means basically for the U.S., for the Somali government, um, for Shabaab, which is al-Qaeda's branch in East Africa, um, which has been waging an insurgency there for many years now. And Bill, you know, I I wrote a bunch of different notes down as we were preparing for this episode. We'll just go through. I'm not going to sort of tick them all off at the beginning here. You can sort of, you know, add anything else in that I'm missing or correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, But the first thing that came to mind when I saw this announcement that came down in the last several days was, you know, sort of why now? A question, you know, if if it's such a priority for the U.S. to get out of Somalia, where there are about 700, you know, troops, I guess, or what's been reported to be in Somalia, U.S. troops, so it's a small force. If it's such a priority for the U.S. to get them out, um, why didn't President Trump do that sooner? Nothing has changed on the ground. The military situation hasn't changed on the ground. Shabab is not close to defeat, of course, and they're not uh, they're not throwing in the towel. So, you know, I think this is, speaks to the politics of the moment, right? I mean, but do you have any answer for that, Bill? Why do you think they're – why now? No, Tom, I, I don't have an answer. We, we've been hearing rumblings of, for about a year that the, the Trump – President Trump wanted to withdraw U.S. troops from Somalia or, you know, and I, I suspect this is part of the, you know, the wider movement to end the Somalia. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's, this is part of the end of the wars. But here's the point, right? This is why I asked the question. Why not end them? If you can just end them, right, then why not do it earlier? Why wait until after the presidential election of early November 2020 to do this? Why wait until the closing weeks of, you know, unless you believe that, you know, you know his tweets that he really won the election, which, of course, I don't. Uh, it's nonsense. Um, but unless you really believe he won and is going to somehow stay in office, this is the closing weeks of his administration, of his time in office as president. Why wait till now to do it? I mean, if it's such a priority, why not do it sooner? Yeah, we we can only speculate. I mean, perhaps he thought he was going to have a second term and be able to, you know, to kick this off at the beginning of the next term. Uh, perhaps Iraq, the the withdrawals from Iraq and Afghanistan were sucking up oxygen in the room. You know, we could probably, we could only speculate, Tom, but it is a good question. I suspect that it's happening now, in, in, and I, I suspect he recognizes he has lost the election, and he wants to fulfill his promise to end the so-called endless wars. That's the only reason I could think of. It's at least initiate that, and uh, perhaps that'll be, he could claim that as his legacy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think President Trump really cares about <laughs> owing up, yeah, to, I, owing up to his you, pledges I'm, to the American people or anything else, or the or keeping himself honest on anything. You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, to some extent. Look, I mean, some people have called President Trump an isolationist. I don't think that's right. I don't think you can call him an isolationist by his behavior throughout his his you know time in office. I do think there is that sort of isolationist impulse there, however, in terms of rhetoric and otherwise. There's sort of that idea that you know. The U.S. is always getting a bad deal everywhere and needs to just get out of everywhere. And look, you can make the case against every conflict the U.S. has been in, right? I mean, there's, there's a rational case against everything, you know. Um, but there is this sort of rhetorical endless wars narrative that he is he's embraced and we've talked about on the podcast a number of times now. Um, and this is certainly the only thing I can think of is that it fits that 
rhetoric. It fits that idea of, look, we're going to end the endless wars by having the U.S. get out. But of course, as we've talked about so many times before, you can pull the U.S. out from everywhere. That doesn't mean that the jihad ends. That doesn't mean that the actual war ends. Um, Now, I would say this about the endless wars sort of rhetoric. Um, I do think it's the case. I mean, again, uh, this is sort of speculation on my part. I don't have polling to substantiate this. I don't have any way of proving this empirically. But my guess is that most Americans have no idea what the hell the U.S. is doing in Somalia, right? I mean, I don't think that the average American knows what the U.S. is doing there. I don't think there's been any sort of communication from the American leadership to explain this in sort of any kind of cost-benefit analysis or any sort of security analysis framework. You and I could make that case, right, Bill? Uh, but I don't. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that the that the American leadership has, right? No, it hasn't, and it gets back to you know, Africa is the the lost continent. Nobody really cares, and other than some individuals, you know, in Congress and the White House, there's very little concern about. And when you say that, you're lamenting that situation, right? That's something we don't yeah, we don't like. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, and it, and it's a shame. It's a shame for. People who have to suffer, uh, you know, under jihadists like Shabab controls large portions of southern Somalia and contests large areas and probably controls areas of central Somalia as well. It's extending its insurgency beyond that. And then, of course, we can go beyond Shabab and and talk about all of the other jihadist groups operating, many most al-Qaeda-linked, other Islamic State-linked groups. Um, That's all happening. Uh, Muslims and Christians and, and others are dying in large numbers, I think Africa has become one of, you know, is the, the fastest growing battlefield in my estimation um, in, over the last several years. And, um, you know, the, the attitude towards Africa is, uh, dare I say, F Africa. That seems to be U.S. policy. Who cares what's happening in, in Africa? I'm surprised we've had 700 troops in Africa for this long. Uh, I, you know, Shabab is an enemy of the United States. Without a doubt, it's an it's Al Qaeda branch. Without a doubt, we should be fighting it, but the desire to do so is uh, minimal at best. Yeah, I think you know when you say there's seven hundred, there are reportedly seven hundred troops in Somalia itself, not just across all of Africa. Of course, you got several yeah thousand, in Somalia, yeah, several yes, thousand absolutely. across all of Africa. But I think it brings up the point, right? I mean, if if the U.S. is not willing at this point to maintain a small force of 700 to try and stand up local forces against the jihadis, um, then that shows a pretty radical shift in sort of how the U.S. is approaching this over time. I mean, look, we're not talking about, and this is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, we're not talking about an Iraq-style surge. We're not talking about a 18-month surge in Afghanistan. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of American troops. We're not even talking about 100,000 American troops. In the case of Africa, we're not even talking tens of thousands of American troops. We're talking less than 10,000, according to all the reported figures, across the entire continent. Um, so you're talking about yeah. small deployments. Um, yeah, Tom, we're not even talking um, the fight against the Islamic State from 2014 to 2019, what, you know, 5,000 troops. We're, we're talking 700 troops in Africa. It's In Somalia, yeah, in Somalia. In Somalia, sorry, in Somalia, yeah. correct. So we're talking small deployments, and this is the model that the U.S. sort of backed into under first uh, President Obama and then President Trump, which was to have a small force try and sta- stand up local forces local governments, local allies, or local partners to contain and disrupt the jihadis. You're not going to defeat them that way. Shabab isn't going to be beaten, you know, once and for all during this model. But the idea was to keep them at bay. Now, the U.S. military um, sort of scrambled to 
justify this move or explain it away. And, of course, they'll say, well, the U.S. is repositioning most of its forces from Somalia to neighboring countries. Um, okay, right? They, they are, that's what they say they're doing, okay? Um, but you, you describe that as sort of an over-the-horizon model, Bill, of uh, fighting these guys. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why you don't think that will work. Yeah, so the, the U.S., you're right. The U.S. military has said that they'd be able to keep up the same amount of pressure on Shabab as it has with having the 700 troops inside of uh, inside of Somalia. I keep making that mistake for some reason today. Um, and, yeah, so an, an over-horizon model means that there's going to be a limited number of U.S. troops in country. So the further you get away from the battlefield, the more difficult it is to ascertain the quality of intelligence, to have an, a situational awareness. Uh, U.S. Uh, AFRICOM may think that it'll be able to retain the same capabilities, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that it won't. It, it, these, these capabilities will decrease. It increases the likelihood of things such as uh, civilian casualties and strikes. It, it decreases the U.S.'s ability to monitor the situation over the battlefield, to respond more quickly, because let's face it, if the, the um, let's say if there's no air base inside Somalia to conduct these operations, they're going to have longer flight times. They're going to have, you know, shorter loiter times over the battlefield. There's a host of problems. But over the horizon means we're not fighting within the country where we where we want to conduct our operations. We're doing this remotely. We're doing this from neighboring countries, from probably Kenya, probably Ethiopia, places like that. Um, it The increased distances makes the fight all the more difficult. And... You know, yeah, we can argue, look, the revolution in drone technology and, and, and battlefield communications, it still makes everything hard, much more difficult. You can't be everywhere um, quickly when you go over the horizon in this model. So it will, it will, it will decrease, you know, the time to conduct a strike when you, you know, when you have a target of opportunity, a whole host or, or conduct a operation to say prevent a Somali military base from being overrun. You know, the, the time lag really impacts the, the military situation on the ground. AFRICOM is putting up a good face. You know, look, my preference would have been AFRICOM to say, <laughs> look, we've been ordered to um, to pull back from beyond Somalia, and that's what we're going to do. And we're going to fight this way. This is, you know, instead what we constantly get from U.S. military commands is trying to put lipstick on the pig of withdrawal. It's um, it's tiresome at this point. I, I much prefer to just see honesty or just say nothing um, or say as little as possible or just, you know, so that, that would be my preference. But that's not what we get. Um, military commanders seem to have the desire and need to uh, support bad decisions. So before we talk a little bit about Shabab and its history, um, which is mired in the Disconnect the Dots mythology, um, Let's talk a little bit about the current status of the conflict there. I mean, so Shabab, you know, one of the curious things about, you know, sort of AFRICOM's statement about this and the U.S. military's positioning on this is they basically saying it's all right. We can we can do everything we were doing from outside a country. Well, I mean, of course, then why why were you in country in the first place and putting personnel on the way uh, on Shabab's, you know, basically opening them up to being hit by Shabab in country? Or the ISIS branch there, which is smaller than, much smaller than Shabab. But the second thing is, of course, you know, things aren't going great now. I mean, yeah, you could say the presence that's there now, what it's what it's done is it's prevented Shabab, 
which again is a branch of Al-Qaeda, from overthrowing Mogadishu, from taking over more of the country, from sort of establishing outside of its current strongholds, which are about, we think are about a quarter of the country, maybe more, right? I mean, I think a quarter is probably a a lower end estimate, really, when you look yeah, at that, it. That, yeah, that was an estimate given by the, I believe it was the previous AFRICOM commander. Um, I want to say that was a year and a half ago now, maybe. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I'll just use that as a, b- a ballpark. I and so, and, and it's a, a low, I don't think it's gotten any better. Right. Let's put it that right. way. So, yeah, so, that's probably a great low end estimate, Tom. I agree with so you. So they basically, basically what that presence has done is it's helped the Somali government and other local you know, regional governments and allies in the country and around the region, it's prevented Shabab from taking over more of the country or even perspect, uh, even possibly all of the country and forming its Islamic Emirate. That's what they want to do. They want to form this totalitarian regime based on, based on their ultra-radical sort of interpretation of Sharia or Islamic law. Um, make no mistake about it. It's something that, um, although there are all sorts of local factors in how they want to do this and there are, you know, tribal and and clan factors and you know local politics and local businesses dealings and illicit dealings in terms of uh you know trafficking and everything all that stuff is in play all of it um but you know this they still have a model that's similar to the taliban's model in terms of what they want to do they want to build an islamic emirate and you know the the emir of shabab abu obeda ahmad amar who I'm sure, you know, probably most people don't even heard of, but he's somebody who's openly loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda internationally. Um, you know, he's referenced the Taliban as a model for what the Shabab wants to do in Somalia. So has his, his spokespeople, so have his predecessors. Um, there is a global component to this in terms of what they want to do. It's not the whole story, but there is a part of the story, and we'd argue a bigger part than some people want to admit, a global component in terms of this being a something Shabab is trying to do, just like the Taliban is trying to do it in Afghanistan, just like other Al Qaeda branches are trying to do elsewhere, and just as other ISIS so-called provinces are trying to do elsewhere, they're trying to form these emirates and one day link them up in their imagined caliphate. Now we know, you and I know, and we said this every time we talk about this, that this is the goal of the jihadis. Look, that that's a far off prospect. They're not they're not close to resurrecting a real caliphate today. ISIS had a go of it and got a lot closer to making it happen than people wanted to admit. But it showed that this is a very real idea in the jihadis' minds and a real, very real political goal for them, which a lot of policymakers in Washington have tried to downplay or ignore through the years. You know, famously, John Brennan, in I think it was June of 2011, you know, three years be- you know, to the day before ISIS declared its caliphate across most of Iraq and Syria, John Brennan gave a speech in which he called it an absurd, feckless delusion. Those are his words. And he said, you know, we're not going to... We're not going to organize our counterterrorism policies around this. Well, you know, that's how they're organizing their jihad, right? That's their jihad is organized around it. And so Shabab is trying to do that in Somalia. They're trying to build this Islamic Emirate. And, you know, besides disrupting terrorist operations, which the U.S. certainly has, the political objective for the jihadis is to establish Islamic Emirate. And the limited, small U.S. presence in Somalia has prevented that from happening. But as you've documented, Bill, over and over again, that doesn't mean that Shabab and its allies are close to defeat. It doesn't mean that the jihad is about to come to an end. This insurgency is about to come to an end. It just meant that the U.S. had this small presence that was able to contain Shabab and its political aspirations and, to some extent, its terrorist aspirations. And what, what would you say about that, Bill, in terms of the current status of Shabab today? Like, where do you, how do you think this is going to play out? Over, where are they today in all this? And where do you think they're going to be over the next year, assuming the U.S. does complete its withdrawal and has the problems with the over-the-horizon model that you think they're going to have? 
So keep in mind that Shabab uh, actually ran a, um, an emirate fr inside Somalia. Uh, basically, it controlled the capital of Mogadishu. It controlled the city of Kismayu, which is the second largest city, the large port city in, in the south. And it controlled almost nearly all of southern and much of central Somalia from, I, was, I believe that was two, 2008, 2009, up until 2011. It took an African Union peacekeeping force and uh, with U.S. support to, to eject them, and it was several years of fighting to, to eject the Shabab and get them back into the rural areas, basically. They've been fighting ever since. So, it, you know, they were never defeated. They were just rolled back, and they've maintained control of rural areas in, in Somalia. As we discussed, we, we, the low-end estimate is at least 25% of, of southern and central Somalia is under Shabab control. And, you know, they, they are often able to uh, enter small towns, small and medium-sized towns and cities, take them over for a short period of time, and then they'll leave when Somali forces backed by the U.S. or African Union forces um, backed by the U.S. you know, go to eject them. Well, keep it, you know, that's going to get much more difficult as the U.S. goes over the horizon because often you've had special operations forces conducting missions alongside Somali forces, that's going to, you know, again, that's going to decrease. Uh, Shabab uh, is routinely, I would say, well, routinely maybe is a little too, uh, um, often is able to overrun Somali military bases, Somali police bases, African Union bases, and kill dozens of security personnel during these operations. And even in the last year, it penetrated security at a U.S. base, not in Somalia, but in Kenya, destroyed uh, some light aircraft, and I believe it killed uh, one or two Americans during that operation. I think it was three Americans. Well. Yeah, I think it was one. It was it three? Yeah, I think yeah, it was okay, one yeah. service member and two contractors. I think two. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Correct. And um, yeah, so you know, and again, that's not even that's not even inside Somalia. They're able. You know, when I hear the word, you know, that we are that the contain. I well, let's, let's get to that. that. Let's get to that. What what happened? So the U.S. military in in justifying President Trump's move here at the end of his tenure in office, um, basically a spokesman for AFRICOM comes out and says, well, you know, we've got them contained, um, you know, and, you know, I was of two minds when I saw that. I mean, contained in the sense that they can't overrun Mogadishu right now or retake all the country. I think that part is probably true. Yes. But not contained in the sense that they are, aren't able to project force inside the country, as you just said, overrunning Somali forces. Um, and outside the country and throughout the regional, you know, uh, countries, neighboring countries. So, you know, it, it isn't contained. It's contained only in the sense that they're not able to achieve outright victory right now in Somalia. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are contained in the sense that they're, you know, risk at risk of being rolled back or that they don't have a they're not going to able to be able to keep fighting and keep making gains in the future right and that's why i asked you about the year going year forward right from this this move and i knew you, you would say you would have a problem with the contained word as i did you know and the, the other thing is is that you know that this re recently the inspector general's office of the defense department uh issued a report independent assessment saying they're not contained right i mean yeah, <laughs> that the, right. and why don't you walk everybody through that the listeners through that yeah yeah exactly the inspector general note notes that shabab controls a significant amount of territory it's able to conduct operations it's again somali security forces are not uh, capable of uh of rolling back shabab significantly it can conduct operations 
at times, um, but these are fleeting. They're more like sweeps or, or what uh, we've heard U.S. military commanders describe in various theaters as mowing the lawn. They may go in and kill some Somali fighters, but once they leave, it's business as usual. Shabab rolls back in. I, I've, you know, I think a better word for this is keep a lid on it. I really think that's and, – and people might say, well, that's the same as contain, but I don't think so. And I think with the U.S. withdrawal, that lid gets a little bit looser. So when you, when you have the – you know, you have a lid on a pot of boiling water. If that, that water is boiling real high, that steam's coming out, your lid's bubbling. And I think that's more of what's happening. It's We're not keeping containing all the steam inside the pot. It's overflowing. It's bubbling out. And that's what's been happening inside of Somalia. Um, yeah, I just – I do – I bristle at that word contain because it makes it sound like the U.S. and AFRICOM and, and Shabab have a, have a good handle on this problem. We're keeping them – where they need to be, um, or yeah, we're, but real in reality, it's you know they're like as you said, Tom, they're just keeping them from from rampaging across across the country. Um, it's you know you're a couple hairs away from that thing, from things getting real bad, and this is why I'm really concerned when the U.S. does do a, a major pullback from Somalia that this will embolden Shabab to uh, increase its attack on Somali security forces. And, uh, you know, how is the U.S. going to respond? Is it going to put troops back in country? Is it going to increase airstrikes? What if there's civilian casualties, something that the entire U.S. military is, is extremely sen sensitive to? And even AFRICOM, which is, I think has been, by the way, has been the most transparent of all the commands uh, um, where, the, where, where the war fighting has been going on. Even uh, AFRICOM is concerned and, and issues reports on civilian casualties, um, you know, where they happen or where they're reported what, and what's going on. Um, AFRICOM isn't going to want to keep doing this, and they're not going to want to increase the chance of civilian casualties um, coming through their operations. Yeah, so, you know, so that, I think it's a good way of describing or, or explaining our problems with the word contained. Um, you know, the other the other issue here is that, you know, I think AFRICOM does a reasonable job of emphasizing Shabab's Al-Qaeda allegiance. Absolutely. I agree, Tom. They, 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 don't, they are, they're not they're not softballing the what Shabab's capabilities and where it is. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, that. I would that said, they don't actually explain it in detail. Right. And this is something that you and I have said the U.S. government should be doing more of to explain to people, the American public, to, to policymakers, to. Uh, congressmen to senators, um, you know, all elected representatives. There needs to be more public education about what is going on here, and then people can make their decisions one way or another, including whatever it is that they, you know, want to support or don't support. Um, but you know, I just I find it striking because the, you know, uh, having done this for a while now, and we we we've done this. I I can't remember the first time we fought the disconnected dots mindset on Shabab, but it definitely goes back to the Islamic Courts Union Day, Union Day, yeah, the ICU days, right? Where, you know, everybody was saying, oh, you know, it's just sort of an indigenous group. There's nothing really, you know, uh, there's no Al-Qaeda angle to the story. Meanwhile, we're identifying Al-Qaeda operatives and senior ranks within the ICU, right? And why, why were there? Because they were trying to, to steer that organization, that, that sort of configuration, that that joint venture in a certain way. And ultimately their political objectives for the ICU failed. And so what happens is Shabab, the youth wing of the, of the, of the joint venture splits off and becomes its own sort of, you know, uh, insurgency unto itself organization itself. And it's been openly loyal or openly advocating on behalf of Al Qaeda and, or openly 
loyal to Al-Qaeda since its inception, really, when you look back at its propaganda, its videos, and that wasn't a mistake either. We identified very early on, just as there were senior Al-Qaeda guys in ICU, there were senior Al-Qaeda veterans inside Shabab, and then you have the the other guys who have been indoctrinated into Al-Qaeda's ways of doing things. Let's talk a little bit about the Shabab history here for a second. Um, Now, I know I'm probably retelling the story. We've talked about this a number of times, um, but it's such a good story. I remember in 2010, you reported, Bill, that um, you know Shabab had was Shabab leadership at that time was Ahmad Godane, um was the leader of Shabab. He was in direct contact with Osama bin Laden. He was writing letters to him, and bin Laden through Atiyah Abdul Rahman was responding to him. And you had reported in 2010, I think it was August 2010, that um, basically bin Laden had accepted Shabab's allegiance, but just said, keep it on the down low for positioning. Uh, basically, we're bu- you're building an emirate there. We want business people to be able to donate and contribute and do business there. We don't want to make this explicit that this is Al-Qaeda for his own sort of strategic or tactical reasons, however you want to phrase it. Um, that was Bin Laden's thinking on that. Now, some, I would say, misreporting or misanalysis or erroneous analysis rose up that Bin Laden had rejected Shabab's Baya or Oath of Allegiance to him. Um, that wasn't true. Uh, you know, we subsequently have files from Osama bin Laden's compound, um, including the correspondence between bin Laden and Godane. And one of the letters that was characterized as bin Laden's rejection of the allegiance was a letter that was contemporaneous with your uh, assessment, with your reporting, Bill. I'm sorry. You know, I think it was like a week before your report. Bin Laden wrote that to Godane. And it's quite clear he says, you know, he, he accepts the bayah in, the, in the, the letter. He doesn't reject it. He just says to keep it quiet, keep it private, and and he says announce it amongst your guys there in Somalia, but don't, you know, just don't advertise it. And in fact, what we found going through the Bin Laden files was that that letter that was released in, um, I think it was May of 2012 uh, by the Obama administration, uh, you know, through the Combating Terrorism Center in West Point, was actually a attachment to a longer letter from Bin Laden to Ati Abdel Rahman. And in that longer letter, he spells, Bin Laden spells out the terms of the Bayah from Shabab to him and and openly discuss Shabab at this Islamic Emirate and just explains why he wanted Shabab to keep basically he just wanted them not to formally say you know once and for all in public yes we are Al-Qaeda like he just wanted them to keep that wiggle room that little bit of wiggle room for doubt but that didn't mean he had rejected their bio their oath of allegiance at all it's very clear from the correspondence he had accepted it um but yet you could see the disconnect the dots mindset was there was such a desperation to deny that Shabab was part of Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda, remember, it was 2010. Al-Qaeda can't possibly be growing. We got them one or two drone strikes away from death now, right? They couldn't possibly be growing through these through these local insurgencies, right? That couldn't possibly be Al-Qaeda's MO, even though it's been their MO from the whole the whole time, right? Uh, you know, so... I think back to that, you know, I know I'm retelling the story here and we've done, I've written about this, you've written about this and well, I'm sure we're going to write about it again, but I just keep coming back to that. I mean, you know, I, to this day, I don't think anybody other than you and and me, I don't think other than us, I don't think anybody's explained this to people that this is what actually happened here in terms of how Shabab, the Oath of Allegiance was actually accepted by bin Laden. I mean, you know, so I, I look at AFRICOM and I think, okay, it's good they're, they're emphasizing the truth about this, that Shabab is openly loyal to Al-Qaeda leadership. But there's no explanation, again, for the American people about what that means or how this works or what the source documents say or the primary sources, you know, and how this all works. Yeah, and this this gets back to one of my biggest complaints, one of the biggest failures in this entire so-called war uh, on terror. It has been the lack of explanation to the American public of the importance of fighting in places like Somalia and Afghanistan and other places. Look, and, and, you know, it's funny. I mean, 
you had individuals within Shabab in 2007 appealing to al-Qaeda's leadership. So, uh, one, uh, an al-Qaeda leader named Saleh Ali Nabhan, who um, he was involved in the Kenyan Tanzania at the bombings with uh, you know, al-Qaeda's attacks and the, um, in the embassy, at the embassy's attacks there. He openly, you know, in an open video, he and other al-Qaeda leaders and members of Shabab came out and said, hey, we want to be part, we want to f- be officially part of al-Qaeda's uh, leadership. And there was never, if I recall, there wasn't a public response to this from al-Qaeda. But here we had four year, three years later. Well, they, you we know, al-Qaeda the, responded the in their own way. I mean, remember bin Laden and Zawahiri, what they do is they release these messages to the lions in Somalia. That's right. Praising. That's right, so the, way they would, right. the way they would, was, the way they would do it, it is very subtle. Right. The way yes. they, well, I mean, the thing is, it was subtle. You know, it's subtle for those looking for wiggle room, right? If you're yeah. looking to explain right. away Al Qaeda's growth in Somalia and East Africa, if you're looking for an excuse to say this isn't Al Qaeda, what people would say is, well, they didn't officially recognize Nabah's right. plea, exactly. blah, 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 right? But I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, if I were to, if I were to, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I was trying to come up with some sort of analogy and forget it. it there is no analogy. It's just stupid, <laughs> right? I mean, the, well, the, like, point is, the point is is that if, you know, you have here, you have guys openly flying the flag of Al-Qaeda and just saying, hey, we're Al-Qaeda. And there's just this desperation in the West saying, well, not really. They're not really Al-Qaeda, right? They're just local guys and blah, 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 right? I, and I like Saleh Ali Nabhan, Tom, because he, um, uh, look, this is without a doubt, he's Al-Qaeda, right? After the U.S. killed him, um, Shabab created a, a unit, a martyrdom unit, which is basically a suicide team uh, called the Saleh Ali Nabhan Brigades, and it's taken credit for numerous suicide attacks, all these attacks on hotels. I think Shabab's had some, about, what, 30 suicide bombings in the last year? This, year alone. this year alone. Yeah, yeah. just this year, yeah. made 30 major suicide attacks that the Caleb Weiss, our colleague at, at Longwood Journal, has been able I mean, by, to By track. the way, that that's significant. why is that significant? Well, you know, I always like to compare the number of suicide attacks across time because it is indicative Um you know, Nate Silver of 538 wrote in his book about sort of what were the warning signs of 9-11. And one of the, the, the right, one of the leading indicators was sort of the rising sort of use of suicide bombings. And just in terms of when you see this sort of martyrdom cult spread, you can see it as something that, you know, policymakers should be thinking about that, that your adversaries, your enemies may use this as a tactic. And, you know, you go back to 2000, there weren't, in the year 2000, there weren't 30 suicide bombings globally by the jihadis you know you had the you had the attacks on the coal yeah the attack on the coal you had just a smattering of operations you didn't have this and here you have in as part of this insurgency now and obviously not coming after the u.s directly in all these attacks some of them are, are at other targets or many of them are at other targets but still it just shows you the proliferation of this sort of martyrdom cult and this suicide sort of mantra that they they carried out 30 suicide bombings you know, this year, now, that, now, you're not close to the peak of ISIS suicide bombings. Remember, I was documenting that at one point. They did a lot more. But it's still, it's, an, it's indicative of that this is a stronger aspect or a key component of sort of Shabab's overall ideology and methodology for waging warfare um, to keep in mind. That's, that's why that 30 figure stuck out to me. It's not a, a huge number as, in relative terms today or to the peak of ISIS, for example, but still a significant figure. Yeah, Tom, I mean, you, you put that in perspective, that's um – once every 12 days, you're able to convince someone to kill themselves by blowing themselves up. I mean, yeah, I don't view that as being an insignificant number. It's, and and it's, it's only a, a, a subset of their operations. Of course, they're, they're launching ambushes and IED, regular IED attacks and mortar attacks and raids and, uh, you know, assassinations. So it's, it's just one tool in the toolkit. But to me, it's, it's a clear indicator of how radical and how violent a group is when they're able to convince people and how effective to convince 
encourage individuals to conduct a suicide attack basically once every 12 days. So let's talk a little bit more about Al-Qaeda and all this. Um, now, Govene, of course, was killed in a U.S. Was it a U.S. drone strike, right? Several years ago Yeah, now. 2014, yeah. I believe that was. Yeah, yeah. so he, he was the long-time long emir of Shabab. He maintained that role for years. He was replaced by Abu Obeda Ahmad Amar, a sort of an enigmatic figure in some ways. He doesn't, he's, not, he's one of these guys that doesn't show his face, right? He doesn't get on camera and say, ta-da, here I am. But he's been in the game a long time now, um, you know, not, not just as Shabab Zamir, but as a senior figure group before that. Um, and he immediately re-upped Shabab's allegiance to Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda senior leadership. There's no indication of that breaking. You know, one of the things that was speculated was that Shabab was going to break off and join, throw in with the ISIS caliphate and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi when they were at the zenith of their power. That didn't happen. Uh, you know, they remained part of the Al-Qaeda fold. Um, they remained loyal to Al-Qaeda senior leadership. Um, you can see there's, it's not just, it's not just in terms of this oath that they swear that they announce, but you can see it on the media side, um, you know, in terms of how Shabab's media house is always integrated within the Asahab network globally, um, and, and, and advertises in, you know, basically there is, there is a sort of a, a central theme or a motif in their media productions that emphasizes their role within Al-Qaeda. You can see in terms of personnel, you know, there occasionally there's some reports about guys in Somalia who are connected back to Zawahiri who are reporting back to him or other senior Al-Qaeda leaders reporting back to other senior Al-Qaeda leaders. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things we've heard from different people is that there, you know, Shabab has representation on the sort of this cross-regional Shura Council of Al-Qaeda sort of something that's been referred to us as the Uma Shura or something along those lines, that basically this advisory council and I'm struck here as the U.S. withdraws from Somalia. This goes back to the theme of that there's no education or public education on this stuff. That even as Shabab is openly signaling its part in the Al-Qaeda global network, there's very little coming from the U.S. government to explain how that actually works and what that actually means and how Shabab is, act is actually part of this sort of global organization. Yeah, Tom, I, you know, you, you noted that with the, the, the death of Drupdel, right? I think that's one of the best examples we have of, on this. He, of course, was the head of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Um, the French, after he was killed, said that they had indications that he was... The, what, the third, third deputy to Zawahiri. Third yeah. deputy to Zawahiri. And when we tried to confirm, you tried to confirm this... With the U.S. military, you got a, I believe it was with AFRICOM, you got a I, no response, basically. Well, I got a, I got like a form response, like a just sort of yeah. a general talking points. And look, I, I, you know, the talking points are actually accurate, right? But but it's not an answer to the question. No, which give me, isn't unusual in our field, but yeah. there's the perfect opportunity to talk about what Al-Qaeda is, what it's... Well, it, you, know, you, know what, what you know what, when it reminds me of Bill, it just goes against the, sort of this myth from sort of the the anti-war crowd or the people who are just against the U.S. military, what I would say is they prioritize the number one thing that they're against is the U.S. military being in any of these places, right? So they cook their analysis around that, right? And, and the funny thing is, is that you and I don't actually cook our analysis around the U.S. military being there. The U.S. can withdraw from everywhere. We're going to still be reporting on what these jihadis are doing. Yeah, exactly. But just It actually means more work, not less, unfortunately. But, but in any it event, I mean, there, there's some people who cook basically their analysis of these groups, these organizations around the fact that the U.S. military is there because they don't want the U.S. military to be doing anything to fight them. That's sort of the priority, right? And so in that in that sort of system of, of thinking or so-called thinking, and I'll, I'll emphasize underscore with an underlying so-called thinking, um, you know, the idea is that the U.S. military hypes these threats in order to keep being involved. Our experience is the opposite, right? The U.S. military, you know, you can you could basically lead – you have the French, you know, defense ministry laying it out there on a platter saying here is how AQIM is tied into the al-Qaeda global management 
and the U.S. military punts on terms of either, you know, offering any sort of, you know, elaborating on that, offering any details to confirm it or going going further on that. They just re- resort to these sort of talking points, which are accurate, but they're shallow, right? I mean, you know, yeah, and, exactly. and, and sort of, you know, and anyway, that that's the sort of thing that sort of, I think, in the long run um, – is going to further undermine sort of support for all this. There's no edu- no public education on this or ex- ex- explaining what these groups are all about, what they're doing. Um, and that's part of the reservation I have with you in doing this too, is like, I don't want to be the guy to sell this or to explain it. I'm just going to, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't, you know, that's not where I'm coming from. I'll tell you what I think these groups are based on actual analysis of what they are, right? Not because I want the U.S. military there. In fact, most places I, I don't even imagine the U.S. military going in, you know? Um, but again, the whole point is is that, is that the U.S. military has drawn down to this small footprint in these areas, and there's there's l- very little um, desire or push by anybody to explain it or defend it at this point. And I think that's sort of troubling in terms of, you know, as Americans, right, this is part of al-Qaeda. I mean, there's plenty, you know, now back to Shabab, there's plenty of evidence. Only somebody who is an ideologue, who is evidence-free, who is impervious to evidence, would say Shabab is not part of al-Qaeda, right? Um and yet, there's really little from, certainly nothing from the White House. There's very little from the Defense Department. There's very little from other places explaining why that's the case or why that's true. Yeah, Tom, you know, we're, we're not talking about, like, you know, disclosing top-secret intelligence on the inner workings of al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or any of these other groups. And look, you know, individuals you and I talk to, we, we both know there is knowledge of this, and it's not knowledge that, you know, disclosing this information certainly wouldn't destroy, you know, means and methods. It wouldn't put anyone in danger. It's just information about the structure of the group. We're not talking about how we came about this information. And, you know, look, uh, there's many, many ways to look at when this war was lost, but I I sort of, when it was kind of left to you and me and a a select few others to to argue what is Al Qaeda, what is the Islamic State, what is that there is an Al Qaeda organization. Yeah, right. right. I mean, you this know, the, wh- the whole point. This is the absurdity, folks, of this field. The absurdity of this field is that the do- the per- the dominant dogma for years is that there isn't even an organization internationally, right? Yeah, right. And, and you know, when when you and I are pretty much the only ones trying to explain, that's the war's over at that point. I mean, the, we can't influence the American public. We can, we can influence individuals within the U.S. government and the U.S. military, and you know, we can talk to people and explain what's happening. And influence just but in the, the sense American that we're public is the facts the best we can, and if yeah. people pick them up or they don't, you know, what I mean, what are you going to do? That's it, you know, in terms of what the actual reality of it is, you know. But I was thinking about this the other day too, because I was reading something. And I won't give the author's name here. Maybe I'll come back to it sometime. But the assumption was, again, this assumption that there's this Al-Qaeda affiliates and then Al-Qaeda senior leadership and there's no interaction between the two or little. Yeah, right. I mean, geez, Luis. I mean, how many times have we we debunked that? I mean, first of all, the Bin Laden files conclusively debunked that. Um, Conclusively. I mean, there's no... Me and you don't even need I mean, you, you don't even need the files. You could use other evidence to show that, but there's layers upon layers of evidence. But now you have this this ginormous assumption again being made that basically that's down to Zawahiri and a handful of his not so merry men, and they're either dead or dying or on death's door or whatever. And once they're dead, the whole thing's going to crumble. Well, that's one heck of an assumption, you know. Um, you know, Chris Miller is the acting secretary of defense. He's sort of been trotted out by the administration to play the disconnect the dots game here in the closing weeks of the administration. I think that a lot of what he's saying is not going to hold up very well uh, for history's sake. Uh, But he's a true believer in the disconnect the dots stuff. And he, you know, he basically, there was a report in the New York Times saying that he went to, he was in Qatar and was throughout the Middle East and was trying to convince 
um, people, folks to try and buy off the 10 Al-Qaeda guys in Shabab, the 10 Al-Qaeda veterans, the ones who really have the veteran pedigree of Al-Qaeda. You know, if we could just neutralize those 10 guys, right, then we don't have to worry about the rest of Shabab. And we can just that's really the only threat to America is from those 10 guys. And the rest of it is, you know, is all local insurgency stuff. And so don't worry about it. And I, I, when I saw that report in the Times, I thought, what the hell is that based on, right? Like, how did you come to the conclusion that you can identify the 10 guys in Shabab that if we can just buy off, and by the way, this thing went nowhere, this effort went nowhere, right? But the idea that you could just buy off 10 guys, what was that based on other than your policy desire to just get out, right? You know? Yeah, you would think 19 years of fighting this war that we'd kind of understand that buying off individuals isn't the way to win this war. I mean, how many people have cashed in on the rewards for justice? I'm, I'm a full supporter of the State Department's Rewards for Justice program, but millions and millions of dollars, $5 million for, for this guy, $10 million for this guy, $25 million for Zawahiri, and yet these guys are still alive. I mean, I, I can't, I, I'm not aware of any major collection. Yeah, now listen, I, mean, on, I, think, on, I think the evidence on that would probably be secret, like you're not going to advertise the guys who pay it, off, you know, and, and, you know, who knows? I'm sure yeah. you would too, Tom, yeah, so. but I... But Tom, the caveat, this, yeah, the caveat there is we can't. You, you, yeah, if if we, it did happen, the, we're not going to know necessarily. You know, so. But everything is leaked sure. anymore. We well, would know at least one, would we not? I don't know. Maybe we, yeah, probably. Look, look what happened with the 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 doctor in in the Bin Laden case, right? And he actually wasn't, you know, um, right. I mean, that information made it out. Right. You would have thought that that wouldn't have, but like to me, that uh, anyway. My suspicion is, you know. These guys would be dropping like flies if everyone was willing to be to, to cash in on. Uh, well, you, you know, know here my, my thought when I saw this report that Miller wanted to, to sort of buy off the ten guys. Does that include the Emir of Shabab, Abu Abeda yeah, right. Amar, Right? Does that include him? Because he's openly loyal to Zawahiri and you know talks a big game and all this, and is clearly part of the Al Qaeda, you know, upper echelons in some ways, um, just based on the things he comments on and how he he conducts himself, you know. Um, does that include the actual emir of the organization, so the number one? I mean, how does this work, right? Or do you think that if you know, he can keep on existing, or is he not really truly committed to al-Qaeda's vision, um, and that you can identify 10 guys underneath him that really, if you break them off, then he's not going to be committed? I mean, what, what, what is this? You know? And when you, when you see this, what you realize it is, is it has nothing to do with um, – this is where sort of the analysis – You know, one of the claims that's often made in the field is that you know, the analysis is politicized to justify U.S. military involvement or U.S. action, right? Actually, uh, I think the opposite is true, that more often than not, intelligence is politicized, the story is politicized to justify American withdrawal or inaction, yeah. right? Yep. Um, I, and, you know, you, you have a whole cadre now of people who are apologizing for these groups, you know, um, you know, playing disconnected dots, whether it be on Taliban and Al-Qaeda or Shabab and Al-Qaeda or whatever. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the reigning dogma on all this. Um, yeah, Tom, one, one point on the um, paying them off real quick. Remember when we tried that with with supposedly Mullah Mansour in, in Afghanistan? Oh, I remember well. We yeah, didn't even know who we were talking about. Yeah, this, Talk, the, talking to that him. was the greatest. Some yeah. imposter yeah. who ran ran off with hundreds of thousands. One hundred fifty grand. One hundred fifty grand. Yeah. Game, yeah. Of American of American taxpayer payer dollars. How do we even know who we're talking to? Particularly when we have a limited presence in the country. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot wrong with that, and of course there could be ways of verifying this. But please, don't tell me we're going to be able to bribe Shabab's leadership and get them off the battlefield. This is a group that's been fighting since, geez, even before. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I think the bribe wasn't even supposed to be to get them off the battlefield. The bribe was just to say 
this is this the component of this that makes it global. The component that makes this a worrisome for the U.S. comes down to these ten oh, guys. Is that what? Yeah, the bro- it's, it's dividing it between. The, it's it's this idea that there's this clear dividing line between what is local jihad and what is global jihad, right? It's this idea that there's some so, dichotomy. So then they could have taken the money and then just participated in global jihad again. Well, but, I mean, forget... We're not even getting to that point. What's the verification We're not even getting to that point. The point, the point is, is that somebody came up with an analysis that said, whether maybe it's Chris Miller, who is National Counterterrorism, director of the National Counterterrorism Center, said, basically, that the part of Shabab that makes it al-Qaeda, that really makes it worrisome from an American policymaker's perspective... Is these are these ten guys, right? And I just I just hear that and I'm like, really? How did you come up with that assessment? Other than the idea is that you just want to get out and you're looking for any desperate sort of ploy that you can come up with to get out, right? Yeah, and and look, Chris Miller, he's famous for saying there's one senior Al Qaeda. Well, that was the next thing I was going to get to. He's, he's, he's said there's only one, and then we kill right. one a couple right. weeks later. I right. mean, and he touts that as a major victory. Well, he's so also the one, one that said there's only two? one. Is it fifty? So is it a hundred? Only one remaining Al Qaeda ideological leader, and I'm al Zawahiri, then he, as you yeah. said, he touts the killing of another one. Um, but now he's saying, well, there's these 10 guys in Somalia, right, who are who make Shabab really Al-Qaeda. Okay, so now they got 10 guys in Somalia, right? Where are they fitting? The, I mean, this is all, this is, now this is based on, here's the point, right? Whatever you want to actually do or not do in all this, none of this is really epistemologically solid, right? None of this is actual real analysis. This is all desperate sort of ploying, basically figuring out a way to basically put the U.S. involvement in Somalia from 700 troops, which is a small deployment, down to zero, right? That's this, that's all this is about. It's not about an actual real analysis of the group or how they work or how any of it's, it's, it's numbers. There's a fixation on numbers. How many troops? We have 20. How about having enough troops in whatever theater you're in to do the job? And Tom, I want to um, well, those, just go those back days to are, Those days are long gone. Those days are, yeah, yeah, long gone, so... No. Yeah. But look, I mean, if you can define a mission that, you know, I'm not sitting here saying we need 100,000 troops in Somalia or anything. But if the mission is to beat back, contain and beat back Shabab, that might mean 1,000. It might mean 3,000. Well, it's it been 700. 6, right now it's been 700. But it's it's running, a 700. Running the country from being overrun, you know. Right. I mean, but, I mean, we're just so focused on a number and not focused on the mission. I just want to make one point when you said about uh, Miller, how his words won't be, uh, you know, how it won't hold up well over time. I think you could say that for just about every military and intelligence official who's uh, spoken in the last, uh, what, decade. Um, it's not something uh, that Miller has a monopoly on on, on being – idiotic or lying or anything else it's uh we've we've been a part of ours your cynicism and mine uh stems from this is that we've been misled lied to and then well, and you know, bullshit for that, the I last mean, decade are they lying to us or are they lying to themselves right and you know and or maybe it's both you know uh you know the, the point is is that none of it's this, both yeah, none of this is really the whole point here is whatever you want to do or not do again i have to keep saying that because listen if you're not if you're listening to us and think that we're gung-ho about any of this then you're not listening very carefully you know uh, <laughs> exactly you know but uh you know but if you the point the point is is that none of this is rooted in the first step to understanding all this stuff we're sitting here in 2020 talking about this and what we're here to say is the emperor is nude in terms of understanding all this overall right that the first step to any conflict is to understand who you're fighting. And there's just basic points of ignorance in that, in, in that regard. Um, and there have been all along, and I don't think they're going to be solved now. So I'm not using that to justify further conflict. I'm just saying that this is a, this is a flaw here in all this, um, that basically, you know, there's still this pronounced ignorance on all this, 
um, you know, that, that's still coming through. And, and models of Al-Qaeda that should have been discredited long ago are still in play. You know, this is a paradigm you can't shake, you know. I mean, it's it's now down to, you know, it was, you know, you heard that bin Laden, it was down to bin Laden and Zawahiri and a handful of others, and then that turned out not to be true, and then now it's down to Zawahiri and maybe a handful of others. And, you know, the point is that nobody who's making those arguments has an actual factual basis for them. It's not rooted in actual analysis or empiricism. It's just based in policy desire. That's the point, you know. And that's where we are going forward here. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Shabab going forward here before we close up, because I don't want to... We could we could go on Shabab and the history of it probably for the next two hours uh, and some of the nonsense out there. Maybe we'll, we'll leave that for our um, grievances episode. You know, we've got a lot of, Absolutely. Got a lot of problems with you people. So um, we'll talk about um, that going forward. Uh, maybe in that episode, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But so let's talk about going forward. So Shabab, so here's here's a component of Shabab's operations that do have the global, this is this is basically what Chris Miller wanted to buy off, right? We know that I think it was in 2016, they experimented with an explosive on a Turkish airliner that blew a hole in it. I think it was 2016. Um, that was a sophisticated suitcase bomb that got through an x-ray or somehow around an x-ray. I remember the story. Um, and nobody was killed on that. So, you know, that's good, but it was sort of one of those things where it looked like it was a test run. Right. Um, and there, there are reasons why Shabab has it out for the Turks and Turkey, uh, the Turkish government is because, you know, Turkey supports the mission in, in East Africa against Shabab. And this is something that Abu Obeda, the, the Amir of Shabab has actually lamented and criticized, um, his colleagues in Hayat Tahrir al-Sham about, you know, this is something that becomes part of this cause a division within al-Qaeda's ranks, even in terms of the role of Turkey and all this. Um, but that was that was a warning sign that they were experimenting with this explosive uh, on a plane. And then there were reports in the New York Times and other press outlets that a couple Shabab members, or perhaps several, were actually receiving flying lessons, which raised the specter that they were trying to model themselves into hijackers, you know, or trying to mold themselves into hijackers on behalf of the group. One of the components in all this that I think is interesting, which I haven't seen more done on, is that well, how does Shabab or part of Shabab integrate into Al Qaeda's external operations wing? Um, because as the U.S. pulls down and withdraws from all this, that doesn't mean that the external operations component of it goes to zero. There's still, again, even if you wanted to just go to a total law enforcement model or a total counterintelligence, you know, intelligence counterterrorism law enforcement model, and have no military operations against this group. Um, you still have this component that you have to worry about in terms of, of disrupting p- the potential for plots against the U.S. or allies, right? And this is one of these areas where we're not getting a lot of um, clarity from U.S. policymakers to explain, you know, what's the current status of this connective tissue? i just give you a couple examples of it. But there's probably more to it, right? I mean, we know that Somalis have worked for the external operations wing of al-Qaeda senior leadership. Um, you know, so we know about the, the longstanding relationship between Shabab and AQAP, which has had a big role in taking uh, plots to the U.S. or directing and inspiring plots against the U.S. So it's not it's not that this um, aspect of the story justifies, you know, I, I don't think, I wouldn't use that to say that justifies continued U.S. involvement in, in Somalia or elsewhere indefinitely or anything along those lines. I'm just saying that that is a component that needs to be factored in here long term to think about. Right, Bill? I mean, yeah, that's correct. And, and look, AFRICOM is very clear in this when it um, issues the press releases on its strikes against Somalia. It's very clear that Shabab remains uh, a significant threat, a direct threat to, to the U.S. and its interests, both, you know, in the region. So, so um, 
I, I just think it's this is part of the problem. Well, but without, but without here. further explanation, right? They say it, but then they don't elaborate and explain uh, what do they what do they actually mean. I mean, that's but that's sort right. of what I'm getting at here, right? Is that you, yeah. you know, no, I, I, you know, I mean, I have to at least give them credit there. Yeah. We don't see this from the resolute support. We don't see this from CENTCOM in Yemen anymore. We don't. We just don't see it in in many yeah. well many when it comes it comes to afghanistan the taliban's got our backs now bill so don't worry about yeah, it well, right? we all know yeah that. we all know yeah, the taliban's our counterterrorism partner now so they've uh, problem, problem they've, solved there moving on you know right. they've destroyed al-qaeda right yeah that's I mean, right they moved against them they're, hun- they're hunting down al-qaeda across the lands right now and all these different strongholds uh it's the greatest betrayal in the history of jihadism it's unfolding right now or or it isn't you know uh but in any event here here's where we get snarky right so yeah Current number of Al Qaeda leaders killed by the Taliban is zero, but we're expecting it to increase. Um, yeah, so so we know that that threat's there. The U.S. military is clear; they're they're clear that it exists. The Africom isn't telling us exactly what that is, but I think Tom, that you you've laid that out. We've also had you know regional participation with Shabab and um, within you know in Nigeria back when you know the they were supporting Boko Haram at some no, point. No, 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 Bill. No, 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 no. All kind yeah, of branches right. ever supported Boko Haram. You can't you can't actually no. have any connectivity there. That that's no. uh, that's a big no no. Yeah. You know, we've we've had reports of, of uh, Libyans coming to Somalia from training and vice versa. Well, and you also, so I mean, Shabab's role in, in fighting in Kenya, you know, is very well documented. You Absolutely. Know, and then going after the Westgate Mall, going after— Westgate Mall you know, is a major attack. Major you've attack. Had Brit, you know. You've had a number of Brits. You've had a number of Americans. I remember a conversation, I want to say it was probably seven or eight years ago, but I had a senior official, I'll just call him that, in the U.S. De- Department of Justice. And uh, it was just a— casual conversation we were having about Shabab and this individual was worked intimately with uh, Shabab and, and the Somali population here. And he, at the time, I believe there was the three Americans who were suicided, um, who served as suicide bombers inside of Somalia. Um, they, I believe they were the first three Americans to conduct suicide attacks, if I recall correctly. I remember at least I, one I, of them anyway. I remember yeah, there were, there were three. One. Yeah, I remember. And I remember asking, you know, the official number was that there were 50 uh, Americans who went to some, uh, to Somalia to fight. And I said, well, that's what you know. What do you think that number is? And I remember he, he said to me, very worrisome, we don't really know. It could be 200 or more. And they, like that was his sort of off the, where are they now? Are they still, did they die in Somalia? Have they come home? The fact that he doesn't know them and with their names, again, it's all supposition, but I don't think he was just pulling this number or pulling this estimate you know, out of a, out of a hat here, he he had something that was telling him that there there are the, there are ones that we don't know that we don't track. Are they back here in the United States? Are they still in Somalia? Have they gone to Europe? Have they gone to other places? We, we we just don't know the the answer to that. But we we do know that Americans have served in top leadership levels of Shabab. Um, you know, uh, Abu Jihad's still around, right? I think right so. Thomas? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the few guys uh, that the U.S. government's actually profiled as somebody who was. You know, served as a direct connection back to Zawahiri. You know, and this, back to Zawahiri, yeah, right? He was, and, still, he was involved and, in delivering charity aid to Somalis and was promulgating. You know, was proselytizing on behalf of Al Qaeda and 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 you know somebody who came from the U.S. who was involved in all that. I mean, there's there's a part. The point the point is not to say that the U.S. needs to be in Somalia indefinitely to deal with all this. It just means that as the U.S. withdraws from Somalia, this is part of the picture that it needs to worry about going forward. It can't be, you know, the, U, the U.S. needs to, in terms of counterterrorism, intelligence, and law enforcement, you know, playing defense now against this type of stuff. It doesn't mean that these, these sort of threads go away overnight just because the U.S. is pulling back. 
Yeah, and as we pull back, those threads are much, much more difficult to pull. And, you know, Tom, I wanted to get back to, right, you just mentioned that he, that, uh, he was, you know, it, we, at least at the time, was identified as a, uh, an emissary from Zawahiri. When we killed Asim Umar uh, back in, in, I believe it was September 2019. Um, when the U.S. did, U.S. and Afghan forces in a, in a raid in southern right. Afghanistan, yeah. Right, the, the, who was killed alongside him, his emissary, his courier to Zawahiri. Yeah. Zawahiri, back to that point that there's not just a local Al-Qaeda branch that has zero connectivity to the to the central leadership. It, it, those ties are, they run deep. We see bits and pieces, evidence of it here and there. We see enough of it that, that conv- I know that you're convinced, I know I'm, I'm convinced, that there's a lot we don't know about the Al-Qaeda and its global network and the interconnectivity between the core and the branches. Um, but we see evidence of it, and it has to run deeper. Yeah, the so-called those, core. I mean, obviously, they're core figures. Yeah, I, 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 when I use yeah. that word, Tom, that's part. Of, that's say, part of the false the word that I don't. Yeah, it's, that's, it's general command. Yeah, is what yeah it's part. Of, part of that sort of false dichotomy is that there's a core, and then the branches. When we now know, we've talked about this in previous episodes. We'll talk about it again. There are core Al Qaeda figures across the branches, you know, um, and you can identify them. So, you know, and, and, and in what sense is there this firm line or distinction between them, and how's Basically, my point in all this just is, you know, how does all this work? We're here in 2020, and i just looking around. I still see stuff that I know you could show is wrong or at least is based on, you know, massive assumptions that are questionable that are not backed up by any real evidence. It's just sort of the prevailing disconnected dots sort of thinking on all this stuff. You know, and I think going forward, um, I do think that if Shabab is, is able to take over more of Somalia or all of Somalia, I do think that's a win for Al-Qaeda. I think that's a win. Al-Qaeda would be able to say that they uh, stood up an emirate in East Africa. And I don't think that's a good thing for the U.S., right? I don't think that's a good thing for the West. I don't think that's a good thing for Somalis. I don't think that's a good thing for a lot of people. You know, I mean, certain, Kenyans yeah. and Ugandans and yeah. Ethiopians and... Yemenis and everyone. I mean, you know, th- this is what's not understood. This isn't just about America. Obviously, as Americans, the United States should be fighting for U.S. interests first. I, I but there's benefits of uh, of standing up for U.S. interests as the U.S. interests go. I believe so do the interests of the world, and 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 our allies and fighting a group like Shabab, uh, fighting any Al Qaeda branch, fighting the Islamic State is in both the United States' interests and the world's interests, and it's a. It's something that should be done, but it's it's not going to happen. It looks like it's going to or it's going to happen less and less as time goes on. Yeah, and it's already been happening less and less. That's part of what I I keep objecting to when it comes to the discourse about what's going on right now. Is that again, you know, the U.S. is not at a peak military commitment or financial commitment or personnel commitment to fighting the jihadis. We're quite quite uh, the force posture that the U.S. has backed into first under President Obama and then President Trump is much reduced from sort of the peak days, you know. Um, And now, as we're seeing in Somalia and elsewhere, um, even the small deployments that are meant to keep up local forces or stand up local governments to keep the jihadis at bay, even those now are, um, you know, basically being ended and are not, there's no, there's very limited or no political support for them. Um, And that, that tells you that, you know, yeah, the, the U.S. can end its war in these, in these wars or can do, do this over-the-horizon model, as you explained, Bill, um, when it comes to Somalia. But the jihadis aren't going to stop fighting. They're going to keep fighting. It's an endless jihad, you know, and they're going to keep going. Abs- 
Absolutely. And Tom, there's just one more quick point I, I, I want to bring up. By the way, it's an endless jihad unless Chris Miller can buy off 10 guys, then we don't have to worry about it. Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we should be fine. Um, you know, look, the U.S. presence in Somalia, as the U.S. draws down, that's the African Union forces that are there, they're already looking. They already have a foot out the door. The countries are looking to to get out of that. And the U.S. presence sort of gives them the ability to, to, to stay in the game longer. They're really needed. Kenya and Ethiopia as well. So as the U.S., shows that it's not willing to to have the same level of commitment to keep the skin in the game. What's the incentive for these countries, other than money, um, to, to stay in Africa and fight and, and die? When they have problems within their own countries, um, you know, they, it's, it's very unpopular in some of these countries for, for their militaries to be deployed and take large numbers of casualties as well in Somalia. Some, you know, there's, I've, we've seen reports of 70 Kenyans getting killed in a raid on a base. And we've seen this with the Ugandans and, and others. Um, uh, so, you know, it's as, as the U S pulls back, these, you should, you should expect these countries to pull back too. And that puts all the more pressure on local, on local Somali security forces. Yeah, and, you know, Shabab's not going to stop just going after the local Somali security guards. They can keep going for the Kenyans and others, you know, too, going forward. Um, I think we'll leave it there on Shabab. We'll definitely come back to Shabab someday in the coming weeks for sure. A little house clean before I sign off here. Um, we have uh, a Patreon page we're going to launch. I'm going to finish copy editing that sucker, and we're going to put that up there for people to donate. If you want to donate to the podcast, we appreciate it. We're going to take the funds to sort of hopefully expand what we're doing in the coming months. Uh, we have a number of guests lined up. This is We're recording this one on a Monday, folks, and then we have guests. We have a guest on Wednesday we're recording, and then we have a guest on Friday we're recording for the holidays to get those out. Um, Danielle Kleiman, who's our producer, is sitting here shaking her head, nodding during the Zoom. Uh, you'll, hopefully you'll hear from her in the future talking about what readers are saying. Um, and we are going to we are we are going to launch the merchandise. Uh, we're trying to figure out a way to do that uh, that sort of reflects our brand. That's also humorous and a little bit snarky and sort of uh, uh, you know questioning everything, but you know still you know something gives 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 readers something that connects with what we've been doing all these years because it's gonna it's gonna keep going. I mean you know the U.S. can end its role in all this stuff, but you know basically we're still here. We're still going to be covering this um, via the podcast and our reporting and analysis on this stuff. Um, the U.S. can't can't wish away the jihad. It wishes it could, but it can't. Um, and so they're going to keep going. So we need your support to keep going, too, um, to keep reporting on this stuff, because, you know, ultimately we think this is going to matter for Americans someday down the road again, um, even if it doesn't matter to very many people right now. And, of course, the U.S. has a lot of challenges and a lot of things that are much more important than what we're talking about. We recognize that with the pandemic and other security challenges we're covering those as well um so we're not we're not saying this is the end-all be-all of what u.s security commitments or concerns really are all about these days we know it isn't um there's a lot affecting americans but we still think there's a story to tell here and we're going to keep telling it so thank you to our listeners for listening to this week's episode of generation jihad please do subscribe to the show as a reminder you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify youtube or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts and we will see you again next week 